Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. For it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean air on you, water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is a service that gives a selection of stories from the Old Testament. And each of them signify either explaining why we need a redemption, explaining our fall, the sin that clings so closely to our lives and from which we must be saved, or it shows us something of what that salvation looks like. It's a rescue. It's a trans transformation. It is God reaching down and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But none of these stories are the final rescue. That was to come later. When in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. And all this week, we have been remembering how the Son of God, Jesus Christ, entered into suffering, not a suffering he deserved but a suffering and a punishment that we deserved and that we earned. And he entered into the darkness as the light of the world to rescue us from our sin. And so now we're going to pause and we're going to be quiet and we're going to remember the cross and the passion of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for this night and all that it means. And we ask for your Holy Spirit as we um, consider your word, 
And we ask that you would make yourself very vivid to us, that you would make the victory of the cross, the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, very, very vivid to us. And Father, we ask that you will lead us to a true renewal, a true renewal in our walk with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, um, it's wonderful to see you tonight. Um, if you would, please turn back to page 10. We're going to look just a little bit at that Ezekiel um, reading. Um, this is a very exciting night. It ended up being an extremely exciting night in the Saladin home because in the other room, as many of you saw, there was great excitement uh, when all the lights came on, in part because a fan also came on with those lights, which caused remarkable things to happen with the candles. So. It was exciting. Anyways, um, friends, this whole service uh, of Easter Vigil is designed um, not just to show us the excitement that can happen through a candle, but well, important as that may be, um, but rather it's, as I was saying before, it's to uh, trace through the Bible this uh, theme of salvation, rescue, restoration, and how that theme of rescue and restoration, it happens in all kinds of little ways through the Bible, they weren't little at the time, uh, rescue through the Red Sea, rescue from Egypt, um, these are big things in the moment, but they culminate not in themselves, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the culmination of the entire Bible. And the resurrection of Jesus that we remember tonight and that we celebrate so wonderfully tomorrow is, and this is obvious, it's all about a transformation. It's about uh, Jesus's body, which is dead and really dead, going from that to Jesus's body being alive and really alive. And it's an unprecedented transformation that we remember this night and tomorrow and that we live in light of. But here's what I want to do tonight. I want to make a, a connection between Jesus's resurrection and our inward transformation. Jesus's resurrection is the basis for our transformation now. Now, usually, very often when we talk about um, how Jesus's resurrection impacts Christians, we think about something that's going to happen in the future. We think about uh, life after death. We're going to die. Um, then we're going to be with the Lord and the Lord is going to give us uh, new resurrected bodies in the future. And that is absolutely true and part of Christian hope, fundamental to it. However, tonight, I want to uh, show you a transformation that has to happen now in us. And that's what the Ezekiel reading is all about. Page 10. In that Ezekiel reading, uh, God looks at Israel, his people, the religious people of his day. And he says, Israel, despite the fact that you're religious, despite the fact that you call on me and name me and all of those sorts of things, actually, Israel... You're spiritually dead. Your hearts are dead. Your hearts are stone cold dead. However, says God in that reading, the day is coming when I'm going to take those stone cold dead hearts and I'm going to transform them. I'm going to take those hearts away and I'm going to give you instead hearts that are alive, warm, beating, spiritually alive hearts. Now, what I want to show you tonight, Emmanuel, is that we experience Jesus' resurrection 
first when God gives that new life to our hearts. And I want to explain a little bit more what I mean by that. Think about Ezekiel. Let me set the scene. Um, when Ezekiel was writing hundreds of years before Jesus, Israel had just experienced the worst disaster crisis in its history. Um, there's a lot of history there, but um, we read about how God rescued Israel from Egypt um, and then hundreds of years passed and uh, Israel increasingly rejected God, despite the fact that God, the fact that God had rescued them from slavery. And uh, over time, just the nation falls apart. So first the uh, Northern Kingdom separates from the Southern Kingdom and there's kind of a civil, a bunch of civil wars. But then eventually both nations, North and South, all of Israel completely fall apart and they're invaded by other nations. One nation that invades them is Babylon, a guy called Nebuchadnezzar, which is a fun word to pronounce, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, see now I can't. That guy comes in and um, uh, conquers Jerusalem, takes a bunch of the people away into exile. And it's the biggest crisis in Israel's history. Now, here's the thing about crises. A crisis reveals, uh, in a way, who we really are. A crisis, is this happening for you right now? I think it's happening for a lot of us. A crisis is the perfect time to really look at your heart and find out uh, what is the real foundation of your life? Uh, what is it that you really love? What is it that you really fear? What is it that you really can't live without? You find out in a way who you are, who you really are in a crisis. And that's what happened to Israel in exile. But here's the thing. Israel found out something really unpleasant. Because in exile, they found out that actually they had never really loved God very much. Not really. They claimed that they loved God. They talked a lot about religious things, but they didn't really love God. Despite all of their religious platitudes, they were really, in the final analysis, pretty much like the other nations that were around them. What does that mean? Well, in the context of Ezekiel, what we find out is that other nations around Israel, um, just like all of us, they wanted certain things. Um, you know, the things we all want. You know, they wanted like power and success and pleasure and approval and things like that. And all of the nations, and Israel was just like this, all of the nations would end up, so to, so to speak, hiring themselves out to whatever uh, God or religion or ideology they thought might be most useful to them in getting what it is that they wanted, power, success, approval, pleasure, whatever it might be. Now, slow down and watch how that works. Israel's religion, up until this point, had been useful to them precisely as long as it gave them what it is that they really wanted, which wasn't really God. Their religion was not animated by true love for God. Their religion was driven by utility. It, you know, it's the idea that God's, God's kind of my genie and God helps me get what it is that I really want. Now, what that means is that for Israel, Israel's real God wasn't the God of Israel. Their real God wasn't even the other gods that they were trying out. Their real God was whatever it is that, that they were seeking from God or these other religions. They wanted power or success or approval or 
pleasure, whatever else it was, they wanted, their lives were based on those things and they were using religion to try to get at those things. Well, anyways, exile happens. Their lives fall apart. They find out who they really are and it's not pretty. And then on top of all that, God's angry. And you think, well, why is God angry? Well, think about it. I mean, it's, it's just think for a minute about um, how religious hypocrisy t- destroys God's reputation. Um, here at Emmanuel, we like to talk about the beauty of Jesus Christ. We talk about it all the time. I hope we always do. We want to uh, love the beauty of Jesus Christ. We want to live for the beauty of Jesus Christ. We want to treasure the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now, just imagine um, if our hypocrisy is made clear, just think about how our hypocrisy, especially if we talk about the beauty of Jesus Christ a lot, think about how that will distort the beauty of Jesus Christ for others. It's a huge deal. And all through the Bible, all of those stories that we've read tonight, God is uh, pursuing, he wants to reveal his beauty to the world. And therefore, when Israel, his people who know him best, profane his name in verse 22, or distort God's beauty, he gets angry. Of course he does. Okay, slow down for a second, because uh, this is where we get to see how spiritual death works. Spiritual death in the Bible, uh, stone cold hearts. What does that mean? Well, a spiritually dead, stony heart. It's not just when I, um, I don't think God exists or I'm not sure if God exists. A spiritually dead heart is when I do believe in God, at least theoretically, I just don't really love him for who he is. I just love what I get to get out of him. A heart of stone in Ezekiel is the heart that uses God, but doesn't really love God. And you can see that in in the story of Adam and Eve. Did you catch that? Uh, Adam and Eve, when they rebel against God, when they disobey God, they never stop believing in God. That's not the point. They just stop believing that God's going to be useful to them. And so they jettison him. And it's not just Adam and Eve, and it's not just Israel. It's, man, we all do this, don't we? I believe in God. Of course I believe in God, we say. Um, God's really important to me. God does all kinds of things. God's amazing. He, he, he gives me control in my life. He helps me achieve what I want to achieve. He gives me money that I need. He, he gives me comfort and health. And he tells me I'm okay when I'm afraid I might not be okay. It's wonderful. And then the crisis comes whatever that one is. And in the midst of the crisis, we find out what our real foundations are and we find out what it is that we really, really love or maybe what we really, really fear. And then when, we, when that foundation of our life that we built our lives on begins to crumble, then, and we lose, you know, whatever it is, health or money or control or comfort or whatever it is that I've been building my life on other than God, then I blame God. I cry out against God and I say, you failed me. You didn't, You you were supposed to make this all work. You didn't make it work. What have you been doing? And then we cancel God and we check out or we just live in resentment against him. And when I do that, I'm an idolater. Like Adam before me and like Israel. And now here's the really tough thing. 
go back to Ezekiel, Israel can't help it. Like they can't stop having a stone cold heart. And even when they find out the reality of their own heart, even in exile, when they're like, man, we got to do something about this. Even when in theory, they want to live for the beauty of God and so forth, they just can't do it. And, And this is so important because dead hearts can't make themselves alive. That's why they're called dead. And that's why, if you go back to that story of Ezekiel, if you notice, God takes full control. He takes full control of the narrative. Actually, God takes full control of the narrative in all of our readings, but I'm not going to go there. In Ezekiel, in our little tiny reading, God says, I will do something like at least nine times. And it's a little bit like this. God looks at the idolaters and he says, listen, idolaters, I know you can never ultimately free yourself from your idolatry. The best an idolater can ever do is trade one idol one idol for another idol. But we can never free ourselves to be able to really love God for who he is. And therefore, in Ezekiel, it's as if God says, I'm going to do for the idolaters what the idolaters cannot do for themselves. And I'm not going to do it because they deserve it. They don't deserve it. I'm going to change them and transform the idolaters because I'm committed to revealing my name and my beauty to the world. And that brings us to Jesus. Why does that bring us to Jesus? Here's why. In Ezekiel, God gives three big promises. And all three of those promises only come true through Jesus Christ. Real quickly, the first promise, God promises to uh, bring Israel back into his presence. In verse 24, he says, uh, I'm going to bring Israel, you out of exile and back to your land. Now, the benefit of getting back to the land wasn't just some sort of nationalistic dream that they want to restore their country. Rather, getting back into the land, the really good thing about that is that they got back to the temple. And the temple was a sign of being in God's presence. Now, when Jesus shows up, he is God's presence. He's not just the temple. He's not just a monument to God's presence. He is God's presence in person. When you meet Jesus, you are in God's presence. First promise. But then the second promise, verse 25 of Ezekiel, God promises to cleanse, clean Israel, forgive them, give them full amnesty for their sin, all the ways that they distorted God's name and distorted his beauty and offended God. And that's exactly what Jesus did on Good Friday. When Jesus took our guilt upon himself. And he took the penalty of our idolatry upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. Not because we deserve it, we don't. Not because God's obligated to show us that mercy, he's not. But because saving idolaters is the best way for God to display the glory of his name and the beauty of his name. And then the third promise in Ezekiel, verse 26, it reads this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And that's where the real resurrection takes place. Or that's where the resurrection comes into the story. Because just like Jesus' body goes from being dead, really dead, to alive and really alive. So when God fulfills this promise to us, God gives us his Holy Spirit and our hearts go from being dead, really dead, to alive, really alive but differently. When God's spirit comes into our hearts, God's, God's spirit gives us a new orientation. So previously, we've been orientated towards ourself. Um, we're happy to use God if God's going to fit into our agenda. We're 
fundamentally committed to ourselves. But now the Holy Spirit takes Jesus's orientation and gives it to us. And Jesus's orientation is to love God for who he is. Jesus loved God more than he loved his own life. That's why he went to the cross. And loving God more than we love our own life, that is the mark of true spiritual life. That's the mark of a heart that's really fully spiritually alive. And that's an orientation to love God more than we love ourselves. Nobody can work that out. You can't resolution that into existence. Jesus is the only human who has ever had that orientation, naturally. But through the Holy Spirit, through grace, Jesus can impart that orientation to us. It's a new heart. And it's the first way we experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ now. And tonight, on this night of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, I want to know, has God given you that new heart? All the time I pray for Emmanuel and I pray, Lord, will you give us deep transformation, not surface transformation, not just religion, but deep transformation. And this is where, this is how it happens. So Emmanuel is God working that in us. You see? Now, let me point something out because Jesus's resurrection was instant. He went from death to life in a blink of an eye somewhere on this night. The gift of a new heart is both instant and gradual at the same time. Because when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, Jesus instantly overturns your heart. There's a regime change that happens in our hearts so that self is dethroned and Jesus is enthroned. But then there's a long story of gradual, Jesus growing that heart gradually. And that takes the whole of the Christian life. But I wanna know do you sense that beginning and growing? Do you sense a growing knowledge of your idols? The areas of your life that you depend on and that you build your foundation on that's not God. Do you know them? Do you have a growing dissatisfaction with them? Do you find within yourself a growing desire to know Christ and love Christ and live for Christ and worship for Christ? And I ask those questions because when the Holy Spirit works in you a new heart, he'll start by diagnosing your idols. He'll show you what you're really after in life. And maybe that's what's happening for some of us in the midst of this crisis. And then the Holy Spirit will break those idols. The Holy Spirit will make life serving those idols other than God. He'll make that just untenable, unbearable. And as the idols break, you'll find that Jesus is your only option. Is that what God's doing in you right now? And there's a great kindness in that. It doesn't feel kind in the moment. It feels terrible, but it is a great kindness because we find out that Jesus is more beautiful than anything we can possibly imagine. He only wants to give us something better. Those are the signs that Jesus is really giving you a new heart. So is he giving you that new heart? And even if you're here, you know, if you're not sure, you're like, I don't know. And I don't even know if I want it. Let me ask you this. Can you give your consent to Jesus to start that work, to start that transformation in you? Can you give your consent to Jesus to deepen that work further than it is right now? Now, in just a minute, we're going to renew our baptism promises. Um, 
And in, in our baptism, if you've been baptized, um, God offers to do all of these things. He offers to give us a new heart. And baptism implies that you're saying yes to that work. And that's part of what faith is. Faith isn't just a blind jumping off of anything. Faith is giving consent to God for him to do the deep work in you. Will you give your consent? We're going to practice now. It's how we end the service. We're going to practice giving our consent to Jesus to do that deep heart change work. It's human resolutions are never going to make it work. You're never going to get anywhere. Only God can do this. But these promises are a way of renewing our consent, saying, yes, Lord, I need that new heart and I need the new heart to grow larger. Will you do it? Let's practice. Now on page 15, we're going to practice that, giving our consent to the Lord. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. O God, you made this most holy night to shine with the glory of the Lord's resurrection. Stir up in your church, in Emmanuel Church, and everyone here, that spirit of adoption, which is given to us in baptism, that we, being renewed both in body and mind, may worship you in sincerity and in truth through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Through this Paschal mystery, this Passover mystery, this mystery of Jesus's suffering and passion, through this mystery, my dear friends, we are buried with Christ by baptism into his death and raised with him to newness of life. I call upon you, therefore, now that our Lenten observance is ended, to renew the solemn promises and vows of holy baptism, by which we once renounce the devil and all his works and promise to serve God faithfully in his one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I invite you as Natalie, Natalie will voice the bold as she's been doing all, all evening. Um, but I invite you to give voice yourself and to give your consent to renouncing sin and the devil and your own self and saying yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Do you hear, in the presence of God and of the church, renew the solemn promises and vows made at your baptism and commit yourself to keep them? I do. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and the deadly deceits of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh 
that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and your Savior? I do. Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments? I do. Will you ob obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? I will, the Lord being my helper. Let us now reaffirm our faith in the words of the ancient baptismal confession, the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe and trust in God the Father? I do. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe and trust in Jesus Christ? I do. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe and trust in the Holy Spirit? I do. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the head cornerstone. Grant us to be joined together in unity of spirit by their doctrine, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you. And Father, I pray for every one of us that on this night of resurrection, will you impart that work which none of us can create and none of us can achieve and none of us can make happen. Will you, by your Holy Spirit, breathe life into our stony hearts? Oh God, we don't want to just speak of resurrection. We want to taste it. And Father, I pray for some of us here tonight on this call who have never really known Jesus. Father, will you right now make Jesus clear and vivid and real? His death, his resurrection, and that in him all things have been achieved for eternal salvation, and will you grant that we might say yes.
And I pray for those of us who have been wandering away. Fetch us home now by the power of your Holy Spirit. And for all of us, fill us anew that we might be a people clearly and entirely and universally captivated with the beauty of Jesus Christ. Make it happen. We can't do it. You can. You said you would. Jesus died to gain it and purchase it. He rose to impart it. And the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out. So make us a people of the presence of God and do not let anything stand in the way of that being accomplished. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.